Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. I want to welcome you to our special series of Money Sense, specifically dedicated to providing valuable information regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. For nearly 30 years, I have been helping listeners learn how to relate many of life's situations to their finances. This pandemic has caused wide-scale disruption in nearly every sector of our lives. No matter your personal situation, we strive to meet you where you are at, both financially and emotionally. Our guests during this series include a futurist, economist, physician, psychologist, as well as local Milwaukee business professionals to get their perspective on how you can apply their insight and expertise to your financial future. This important series will be aired on WISN AM 1130 during our regular Money Sense times, which are Saturdays at 2 o'clock p.m. and Sundays at noon. They will also be available on demand at ellenbecker.com slash money sense or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. We hope you will find these informative and be sure to share them with your family and your friends. My guest today is Dr. Hernando Garzon, and he is an emergency medicine physician practicing in California since 1992. In addition to his clinical practice, he has extensive experience in disaster response and global health. Dr. Garzon has also held multiple leadership roles in healthcare, including Director of Emergency Management for Northern California, Kaiser Permente, and he still serves as a medical director for Sacramento County Emergency Medical Services. He teaches frequently on disaster medical care, humanitarian medical response, and the health effects of climate change. He has served on federal and California state panels to define crisis medical care guidelines and pandemic flu care guidelines, and has been a consultant to the U.S. Department of State on medical care for weapons of mass destruction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hernando. Karen, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. You know, I was just reading through some of the literature um, that I had on all of the amazing things that you have done. And one of the things that you said was responding to a disaster is similar to the kind of unknown that we encounter in the emergency department. But on a massive scale, what interests me about both circumstances is the ability to bring order to a chaotic situation. And I can't think of anything that I've ever experienced for me as chaotic as what COVID-19 has been on the entire world. And I'm hoping today you and I had a, we've had a chance to actually meet in person through, through mutual friends. And we had a chance to talk a little bit. And I'm wondering how you can paint a picture for us of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Well, uh, let me try. <laughs> uh, you know, pandemics are, are really challenging kinds of disasters because I think many of us are used to sudden onset disasters, which is as chaotic and as terrible as they can be, are generally over in four weeks, eight weeks, uh, whether it's an earthquake or a hurricane coming in or something like that. It does its damage quickly. There's a lot of emergency response going on, but for a short period of time. And then there's a recovery after that, of course. And pandemics are these smoldering, slow onset events that get a bit explosive, but go on for many months and sometimes years. 
And the other really challenging thing about them is that they can be global, right? You can have smaller scale epidemic outbreaks in, in a county or a country, but, but pandemics really become global events like this has become. Um, we had the opportunity to watch it unfold somewhere else uh, first as this started in China. And we've often have our, our pandemic planning guidelines say, hey, if something looks like it's getting bad somewhere else, you better start counting your supplies and making plans and you have that time to prepare. But once it hits, almost never, people aren't fully prepared for this. So um, we've had varying amounts of of impact throughout the country. If you look at places like New York City that was very heavily affected early on, um, and because they tightened down and their response is better, they're improving. But now we're having other areas of the country which are seeing some explosive numbers of cases. So. It's concerning because I think back to the beginning of this when Dr. Fauci said we may see two to 300,000 people in this country infected. And, um, and it's looking like he was right very early on. So this is really a massive for this country and, this, and the world. There's so much fear and uncertainty because people don't really understand it. And I know myself today I was out and some people have masks on, some people don't, some people are wearing gloves. In some areas, it doesn't even feel like there's any kind of a pandemic on. So it seems like the education, or at least people's understanding of it, is so is so diverse and different. Right, and you know, you're exactly right about the fear and the uncertainty. And as much as we have experts who have studied past pandemics, everyone is different and it's new. We have a communication capability. We have a healthcare capability now that's different than it was 100 years ago with the 1918 pandemic. So we kind of have a sense scientifically of how these go and how they march out, but we don't really know how this particular one will go. So there's, there is a lot of uncertainty. And besides that, it's only a very small number of people who are really experts in this area. Most of us are trying to figure out exactly what pandemic is and what it means. And so a lot of the guidelines are, have some scientific basis and have some data to support them, like the stay at home and the physical distancing, and the facial coverings. But, but a lot of the data is not solid on that. So that raises even more questions when one expert says this and another one says that and one county is doing this and another county is doing that. And I think most of us are left a little bit lost as to exactly what we should be doing. Well, I know for me, I'm, I struggle with the idea of <clears throat> some people are dying and they get so very sick and some people don't get sick at all and they're carriers of it. And other people, it's more like a bad cold or a bad flu. And so it's really hard to get your arms around it. I've thought to myself, I just wish I'd get this thing and get it over with and that I wouldn't have to worry. And then I turn on TV and you know, some young person has died from it. And I go, oh, I don't know, maybe it is much more dangerous than I think. And so it's hard to determine how violent is this or you know, how bad is it? I, you know, I've had the very same thought as you. I, I'd rather get this now and get it over with and be fine <laughs> and not worry about it. We don't know. Well, you know, I, I think this is one of the challenges with the way we interpret media, right? Because 
I think a lot of media wants to capture market share and be sensationalist and they, you know, you tend to hear more bad news than good news in the in news stories and things like that. So a young person that died of this is, seems more news, newsworthy than the usual stuff, like vulnerable populations die of influenza every year kind of thing. So I, I would reset this by saying this. I mean, I, I think there's some similarities in that we see episodic infectious diseases all the time. Look at the flu. It comes every season. It kills somewhere between 40 and 70,000 Americans every year. We have things in place to try and mitigate that or minimize that, right? The flu vaccine can be very effective. We push getting it because we know it saves lives and, and those things help. What's different about this, a couple of things, is because we've never seen this virus in the world, everyone in the population is susceptible. Like some people have some resistance to influenza because it may be similar to last year's strain and they had it last year. But with this, everyone is equally susceptible. Number two, we don't have a vaccine for it, so we can't protect anybody. And number three, it does have a higher mortality rate than the regular seasonal influenza we see. So the reason this is so scary is it can be far more explosive than the regular flu season. And because of the increased mortality, especially for old, the older population, the over 65 population, um, we worry because we may end up seeing more deaths because of that. Do you think that the numbers are accurate? Because just as you said, you know, six, 40 to 60,000 people or so died from the flu every year. And then you've just got people that die because they're older and they die every year. And now you've got the pandemic numbers. It's hard to determine how all those numbers fit in. Right. I mean, there's definitely some fraction of error in the numbers, for sure, right? Are some, are some deaths being classified as COVID deaths because they were COVID positive, but maybe they actually died of a heart attack. So th those, those are real concerns. But I think the important point here is, is not exactly do we have 30,000 deaths or we have somewhere in the ballpark of 30,000 deaths. So I do believe the data is accurate enough to call these ballpark numbers and have them be significant enough to say the deaths can be much larger than influenza deaths. That I'm very certain about. My guest today is Dr. Hernando Garzon, and he is um, been, I have to just say, I'm just amazed when I was reading this, that you've been deployed seven times for everything from a rock slide in Yosemite in 1996 to the collapse of the World Trade Center in 2001. And so I think what would be really interesting when we come back, if you could just explain a little bit about what you do and how you do it and how you've had your fingers and gotten to be such an expert in looking at these types of disasters. And, and I love the idea that trying to bring order to them. And one of the ways you try to bring order is that you teach. And so that's really fascinating. And with that, we'll be right back. My guest today is Dr. Hernando Garzon, and he is an emergency medicine physician practicing in California. And we've been talking about COVID-19 and trying to understand a little bit more about what is actually a pandemic. And it brings me to a question, um, Dr. Garzon, that I have to ask you is, how did you get involved in all this? Where did it start? And to bring you to have this type of expertise in dealing with such tragic situations. 
Well, Karen, thank you for asking. I, uh, I think that it started for me very early in my career, actually, in doing a couple of, uh, of disaster exercises when I was a resident. And I recall a, an airplane crash on Long Island when I was a resident and preparing to get some of the victims from that plane crash and, and developed an interest in disaster response then. And then when I started my practice in 92 in Sacramento, I was involved with a fairly newly formed urban search and rescue team there and uh, our urban national urban search and rescue system, which is part of, of FEMA's response capability uh, designed for collapsed structures and now terrorism and earthquakes and hurricanes. And um, the first deployment I did was the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and that led to fairly extensive activity through our domestic disaster response system. And I really essentially have developed my disaster response as a secondary career to my clinical practice as an emergency physician. So emergency medicine is, is, um, is very well suited for disaster response, global health work, and, and work in, in low resource communities and countries. And so I started doing international disaster response in 2002 with uh, multiple organizations. I've worked with Doctors Without Borders and International Medical Corps and Relief International and have been to earthquakes and conflict zones and famine and infect disease outbreaks. And, and that's how the international stuff got going. And through that, I think my healthcare system realized that I'd sort of had developed this expertise and and they asked me to do uh, healthcare emergency management planning. So what I've done at home with my hospital and my hospital system has been to prepare uh, our hospital system for disasters, things like pandemics, which is what I'm doing now, and, and, uh, and other kinds of things, terrorism that we face in, in the United States, of course. So I, I know a bit about, about uh, healthcare system emergency management in the U.S. as well. What are the hurdles that you have to deal with in order to provide the best care and to be able to, first of all, physically be there and be safe, but to actually um, make a difference there? What, what are some of the difficulties that you face and all doctors face? You know, I think one of the challenges in disasters uh, is really the lack of resources. I think one of the definitions I like of a disaster, because I think it, it gives you a broad sense of what it's about, or is when, when you don't have enough resources to meet the need, right? When you have enough injured people, when you have enough um, damage to structures and you don't have enough people to search for all of the potential victims or enough medical staff to care for all of the injured and sick patients. And so, so I think the big obstacle is having to operate uh, with insufficient resources. And, uh, and it takes a bit of fortitude to just persevere and do one step at a time and do the little bit you can, even though you know you need to accomplish 10 things yesterday, you have to try and knock out two or three of them today and go with that. And slowly things come up, more resources come in, things get under better control, and eventually there is some kind of response and you've made a difference. But I think one of the most re rewarding thing for, things for people who do this kind of work is that the... Um, you get a sense that, that you've left something behind. You've, you've done some good in a really challenging and difficult situation. You know, Dr. Garzone, I had no idea as to how difficult and the impact on our medical personnel and hospitals and facilities had with this unexpected pandemic and the impact that it made. What do you think will be done differently 
will there be anything? I mean, pandemics aren't easy to, you know, determine when something's going to happen. But all the people that worked so hard and the impact was unbelievable as you watched it on TV. Right. Well, you know, healthcare workers are frontline workers, like our, our police and firefighters and paramedics. They kind of put their life on the line many times. Going back to the the SARS epidemic that many people in Toronto, many of the doctors and nurses were, were affected, infected, and lost their lives as a result. Healthcare workers who've responded to Ebola, that kind of thing. I mean, there's we've had dozens of American healthcare workers die of COVID that were exposed at work. So, so it's really challenging to be on the front lines and put yourself in harm's way as part of your profession to care for and treat people. I think one of the biggest challenges in healthcare has been the lack of a PPE, which I'm sure you and others have heard about and read about. And there just were not sufficient stores of that either locally or at a national level and Suppliers have only so much production capability and everyone else wants to get it and use it. And, and so that's been a real challenge. So I think one of the things that we can do moving forward, and this is by no means over, right? We're, we expect to see more cases and more hospitalizations and more deaths as things open up. And as the pandemic proceeds, we expect a second wave. So I think it's by no means over that we will need to maintain production levels of PPE and keep our healthcare workers as safe as possible. You talk about disaster plans and helping people set those up. I really believe that every family, every person in their mind should have some type of a plan in the event of a disaster. And so not only was um, our corporations and our companies um, surprised by this, but I think most families were so surprised as well and did not know how to react. No, that's, that's a very good point. And I, I got to a point early on in my teaching uh, around emergency management and emergency preparedness. Even at a healthcare level, I have an audience of healthcare workers or hospital administrators. And the first, the first thing I would say is preparedness starts at home, right? That you have to be aware, have, what's your plan at home? Because how are you gonna be able to stay in the hospital and work and take care of patients if you don't know where your kids are? If you don't know that they have a plan to get home from school? If you don't know that your teenagers in an earthquake can turn off the the water or the gas so you know that your home is safe. So I think everybody and every household needs a, a, a family emergency plan. How do we communicate with each other? And what techniques can we use to do that? Sometimes cell service is overwhelmed locally, but you can make calls out. So you can call your family member in another state and that becomes your contact point if you can't get through on a local call. So there's all of these kinds of strategies you can do to prepare personally. And if you have that mindset, I think then you'd be better, more able to participate and more able to plan and respond in a, in a professional sense, whether you um, work in a business or whether you work in a hospital. What are the things that keep you up at night? You know, that's a, <laughs> it's a good question. I, I like to say, I like to say very little because I sleep very well most of the time, <laughs> even, even in the, the hardest moments. But lately, I must say that in the last couple of months, my role has been uh, working for the California Department of Public Health in, in part of the response for, for COVID here in California. And uh, I'm doing a lot of the surveillance around that work. So making sure that we get it right and that we are getting the data and the information we need about case rates and hotspots and 
and healthcare capacity and and you know the limitations of and, and accuracy of that data and and how big is the impact in our elderly population in our skilled nursing facilities and in our vulnerable population and in california we have a very big emphasis on vulnerable populations people in congregate living settings people who are experiencing homelessness and so it can be difficult to get good data on those populations. And uh, so that's been, that's been what's been keeping me up at night in the last couple of months. <laughs> Let's take our next break. And when we come back, are there some things that you can help people, tell people, encourage people to do that would maybe help them to be safer within their community, within their families? And as they are now going out to work, things are opening up. What are some of the things they should be aware of? And with that, we'll be right back. My guest today is Dr. Hernando Garzon, and he is an, uh, an emergency medicine physician. He practices in California, and he has been talking about how his career got started and some of the things that um, are going on with COVID-19, just to give us a little bit more understanding of exactly what we're dealing with. And he had mentioned a little bit earlier that there's this possibility that we may have another wave of this coming through us. And yet it's summer and many places were really itching to get out there. We wanna go out and have a nice dinner or lunch. We wanna be with our friends. What are the things that you would encourage people to be aware of? Um, that maybe they just took for granted before that would help them to be healthy for their coworkers, their family, and certainly for themselves? Well, my, my first recommendation would be for everybody to educate and inform themselves as much as possible from credible sources. Your local public health department is a great resource. Um, the national CDC and other, other credible scientific resources about what are the best behaviors to manifest? And I think you really need to follow the guidelines that are put forth by your local public health experts um, because that becomes critical. Um, I think as we inform and educate ourselves about the risks of disease transmission, you start to realize why it's important to do physical distancing, why the face masking can decrease transmission, why the hand hygiene is critical. You know, I, I think you have to, it, it, it sounds easy enough to wear a mask might help, but I think people can then de-emphasize hand hygiene, for example. So they'll put the mask on, they touch doorknobs, they're out in public, they grab things, and then they reach up and they touch their mask and they've just contaminated their face. So a very rigorous, detailed uh, behavior pattern change to sanitize your hands before you eat, before you touch your face, either to put on or take off a mask. Those kinds of practices, I think, matter. Um, I think one of the epidemiologists that I work with put this very uh, well just yesterday, and he said, I think the message to communicate to people is that the course that this pandemic is going to take is totally dependent on what we collectively do as individuals. Right? That if the majority of us are violating the recommendations and getting closer than six feet and not covering our faces and being out in public and then going to visit our elderly grandparents who may not have great immune systems, we're just contributing to this pandemic going the wrong way. Whereas if we follow the advice, if we protect our most vulnerable populations, our immune compromised and elderly populations, then we have a chance of staying this and having it be a, you know long and slow and hopefully eventually we'll have a vaccine or we'll have more effective therapeutics. It seems when you're talking about some of the elderly that many of the people who are affected by this severely 
are people who are compromised to begin with. Is that true or is it just really affecting everyone just kind of randomly across the board with no direct population? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we do see, if you look at deaths, the proportion of people who have COVID who, who die from this, it increases with every decade of life. Um, so for the 40 to 50, it's higher than 20 to 30. But clearly the highest group, the most at-risk group is older than 65. But we have also seen, and now there's enough good scientific data, that if you have pre-existing medical conditions, especially ones that affect your immune system, um, that you also have at higher risk. So as a healthy 60-year-old, you're going to be better off than uh, someone with diabetes and, and emphysema and is 55, for example. Um, so the, the pre-existing medical conditions, immune-compromised conditions, and, and age is also affected with, with mortality. When I, when I think about getting sick and I think about my parents or I think about my own age where I am at, I really believe that this is probably the first time for myself that several times I have wondered, what if I get sick, will I die? And I've wondered about my own personal health. And when you think about as a world, collectively, I think most everybody at one point has thought, could I die from this? And I wonder if it's going to have an impact for people to want to be healthier, because certainly when you say that, if you've got diabetes, if you're overweight, if you're you know, sedentary, if you're not active, you're kind of a, a, a moving target for this, for getting this. And I'm wondering how, well, I know how important it is for people now to maybe take a closer look at their health and maybe be active in turning that around. So if something else comes around, I'm not thrown into the class that says I'm a compromised individual. And there are so many people like that. Yeah, no, very true, very true. And I think it's a reasonable thought. It's, you know, we believe the mortality for this is somewhere around 1%. It goes up to 10% or more for patients that are over 65. And, and I think it's right for people to think, wow, might I die from this? I mean, the, the mortality from a heart attack can be anywhere from one to 4%. It's kind of low too, but people have a heart attack and they're in the hospital. They're, I'm usually thinking, am I going to die from this? Most of them fortunately don't, but this, the mortality is kind of on that level. So you have to worry about that to some extent. And you're right. I, I think we, um, it's that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? <laughs> that we, we kind of all know what healthy lifestyles should be. <laughs> we should exercise more and eat better and not smoke and those kinds of things, but we often don't do those things. But I think when, when, um, when confronted with our mortality, it's not a bad thing if we think to stop and think, can, can, I, uh, can I take better care of myself? How can I incorporate that into my daily life? And if you're a parent or a spouse, how can you incorporate it and be, uh, you know, be somewhat of change? I know I think about just at our own office, people are bringing in sweets and stuff and to just start to be more conscientious of how you show up in the world. Oh, absolutely. And this is, I think it, you know, no person is an island, right? We all, we all need our social circles and, uh, and our support groups in our communities to live and to move forward and motivate it. I mean, we've shown that the, the, the chance of somebody quitting smoking when they have another smoker in the household is 
is like less than 1%. So for, again, when you're saying about having kids or a spouse or even your, your business associates or colleagues, um, it, sometimes it needs to be a collective family effort. Let's, let's have healthier foods. I know where I work in some of our hospitals, they stopped bringing the donuts, you know, now they bring <laughs> celery and carrot sticks and, and things, you know, health, healthier snack choices that you can make at a corporate level or a family level, but critical, right? Because we depend on our social circles. Yes, I remember when I first worked, and this is a long time ago, and it was at a brokerage firm, and they had one of the local bread makers bring fresh bread every single day. I mean, it was like, it was great, but you could ju you just knew you didn't want to walk in that room, and finally they stopped it. <laughs> because it was, on one hand, it was a ge great gesture, and on the other hand, it all went to our, our bellies and our stomachs, you know? And uh, that, was, that was kind of hard. So I think it's being conscientious and, and thinking about what you can do and the impact that you can make by maybe eating healthier or helping people to be aware of you know, better health practices. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, one of the things that has been kind of puzzling to me is how this pandemic started. And we know where it started, but the idea is that we have to really be aware that this is probably not the last type of pandemic or the last type of experience that we're gonna have in this. And how do you approach that? I mean, you're being called every single day probably to go somewhere or deal with something somewhere. I think it, this is just the first time it's been the whole world for us, but I would guess that we can almost assume that there are going to be other things that we're going to be faced with and we really should be prepared. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker and I'm the founder and the senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And it's been such a pleasure to bring to our clients and to our listeners information on COVID-19. And I've tried to cover so many of the topics. I think that this is maybe our show number 35, somewhere in that area, trying to really bring clarity to some of the issues that are out there so that I really believe that once we have a better handle on it, we feel educated about it, we can actually be proactive and do something about it rather than being paralyzed and living in fear. My guest today is Dr. Hernando Garzon. And as I said earlier, he's an emergency medicine physician. But what's very unique uh, about what he does is that he really deals with pandemics and all kinds of disasters all around the world. And I'm wondering, Dr. Garzon, what, what can we, how do we think about this? I mean, was this just a fluke that we have this pandemic of COVID-19? Can we expect that there will be other things that we will be um, challenged with? And maybe what are some of the things that we as a community, as a country can do to prevent something like this? Well, Karen, this wasn't a fluke at all. And I think people in this arena have, have actually been expecting this and thinking it was coming. I think if you look at historically, they occur about every 40 years or so. We had one in, in 57, 56, 57 that, that killed a couple million people around the world. The one that everyone talks about, too, is the 1918 pandemic uh, that killed a third of the world population at the time, uh, but going back, you had the Black Death and you've had other plagues going back centuries. And, 
And about every 40 to 80 years, we see a major pandemic. We had H1N1 in 2009 that infected several million people around the world. We've had SARS, we've had MERS. So that how, how much these epidemics spread and if they become pandemics depends on many, many things. How infectious is the agent? Uh, its impact, of course, depends on the mortality associated with it. But, but these recurring infectious disease outbreaks are a significant concern for infectious disease specialists in healthcare around the world. And uh, this will not be the last one we see for sure. Uh, but I think this is bringing home a lot of knowledge and awareness to people who weren't aware of this fact or these facts. And I think there's a new normal involved, right? I think we're all becoming much more educated and aware of what infection control and infection transmission is about and how even during a regular cold and flu season, we can probably better, better keep ourselves healthy and keep our elderly and vulnerable populations safer. Um, but the risk is, is there with this for another year or two and with other things coming in the future. And if we do get something that it, a, a shot or, you know, something that we're going to get, um, to take this, is it is it guaranteed that that's going to be take care of it? I mean, I know we get flu shots and we get all kinds of different things, but this isn't really a guarantee. Not at all. And, uh, you know, there are we don't have vaccines, effective vaccines for a lot of things. So I think it remains to be seen whether we can actually find a vaccine for this or a good therapeutic. I mean, we don't have good vaccines for many other types of coronaviruses or very good therapeutic treatments for others. So there's a chance we won't have that magic pill or magic scene for this or for other outbreaks that may come in the future. You know, one of the things that I think is so true is just becoming aware of what you're doing. And honestly, I, I sit back and I think I've worked sometimes really late at night and I stopped at the grocery store and I picked up one of those chickens in the, in the box, you know, <laughs> one of those uh, roasted chickens and I go home and don't wash my hands and I open it up and I take some chicken, I'm starving. And now every time I think about, I wonder how I've stayed so healthy, you know, with all that. And so two questions. One, can we be overprotective that we ruin our immune system? Is there a balance between having too too much washing of hands and, and too much of the alcohol wipes or how do we balance that um, so that we still can maintain a, a really healthy immune system? Right. I, I don't think you can overdo the hand washing or the wipes using. I mean, that's, that's not going to decrease or compromise your immune system at all. I think it's more around the sort of the mental health balance of not obsessing over it, that it controls your life, right? And I think this is where, I mean, I think so much in life is a matter of risk assessment. I mean, you realize that, oh, you come home from the grocery store and you start eating without washing your hands. You've been fortunate enough to not have that be a bad thing, but of course it's not ideal. Realize that it's probably good to get in the habit of washing them from outside and that's good, but don't obsess so much about it that if you can't wash your hands, you're going to refuse to eat, for example. You know, it's, yeah. I think you mindful practices to improve your health, but not, not overboard to the point where you, where it keeps you up at night. So one of the things as I was driving downtown to do the interview with you today, I saw several people out walking their dogs and they had a face mask on and they were out in the 
clean air, let us say. And then um, I went to a grocery store and some people had masks on, some people didn't have masks on. I've seen people in their car driving by themselves with masks on. Can you explain when should we be wearing a mask? That's, that's <laughs> a, a good question. And I'll, I will give you the disclaimer that this is my opinion based on some science, um, but, but other experts may disagree with me. So I think the important things to remember are that the highest risk for transmission is a six foot distance because this is mostly droplet. Right, so normally talking large size drops that usually fall to the ground within six feet. So if I'm infectious, that's about how far I'm gonna spread this. But if I'm coughing, if I'm sneezing, if I'm singing loudly at a church choir, you've probably heard about all these church members that were infected in the church choir. The, the droplets are going far more than six feet. Some people say 30 feet if I'm sneezing, right? So you may be safe in a big open space where no one is close to you, not wearing a mask, but then someone coming down the street sneezes 15 feet from you, and now maybe they've exposed you. So um, masking does not replace physical distancing. That's the first thing to be aware of. So I, I think the safest thing is a distance of at least six feet, maybe more, some experts say. Uh, and if you can't avoid that, maintaining that distance, if you're going to be shopping in the grocery store and passing by somebody in the aisle, and then the face masking will help uh, to some extent. Now the face masking helps mostly to keep us from spreading it to someone who is the infected person. If you're wearing a mask and someone sneezes at you, its protectiveness is, is uh, a little more in question but still be helpful. So I would say you don't need to wear it in your car when you're by yourself, unless somebody's coughing and sneezing just got out of your car and you want to open the windows and let it clear out. But if you're by yourself in your car, you don't need to do it. If you're indoors in, in public spaces with people that are not family, not your normal social circle, you should definitely wear a mask indoors. And that's what many states are going as a recommendation. Outdoors, in most urban areas, you can't guarantee that six foot distance. So it's still safer to wear it outdoors if you if you are going to be even within casual contact of six feet from somebody. And what is the whole issue around some people are carriers and they expose people, but they don't get it. That's a really important thing for people to be aware of and to take on a personal responsibility to protect other people, even if they don't know that they're sick. Right, and that's actually one of the reasons that infections like this can become epidemics or pandemics and spread is that, it, you know, if, if you were not infectious until you developed symptoms, then it's an easier public health thing to, to say because as soon as you're symptomatic, you can lock down, quarantine, stay at home, get tested, and you hopefully haven't infected anyone else. But this seems to behave like many other colds and flus, which is you start shedding the virus in your droplets, in your breath, in your coughs, even in the days before you're symptomatic. And so you can spread it to someone else. And so that's the caution around, this is the whole concept behind what we call testing and contact tracing. That's very important that as our communities open up, our public health department, one of the things that public health can do proactively is to test a lot of people and to trace their contacts and tell them to stay at home. So if, if I was with you yesterday and I test positive today, I would say I was near Karen yesterday. Maybe she should stay isolated until she can get tested 
or, or for two weeks until she knows she's past the incubation period. And that way, carrying won't go and infect someone else even though she doesn't have symptoms yet. And that way to suppress the infection is very important. What do you, when you are collecting all this data, how will that be used in the future to um, better understand the pandemic, to prevent another one? I'm guessing all of that. Exactly. I mean, the most immediate thing we're doing now is trying to use that data to help us understand where we are now and where we're going, right? It's understand what the disease transmission right now, how much is it spreading, are we seeing any hotspots, and then and then try and make projections about where we're going. Can, is it safe enough to let release our community mitigation measures more and that kind of thing. But in the future, many, hopefully many academics uh, in public health and in healthcare will look at all this data and track back and understand better what, what coronavirus is and what it's done and, and use that for future preparation and planning for sure. And I guess just on the last note, I remember that there was something that um, you actually have been in 19 international disaster teams, haven't you? Working with teams around the country to mobilize some of the things that are going on. Correct. And I've done a wide uh, spectrum of disaster response. I mean, some of it has been civil unrest and, and, and man-made terrorism, but some of it, I responded to Ebola in West Africa and, and to famine in Somalia and, and a cholera epidemic in Nigeria as well. So I have some experience in the infectious disease outbreaks as well as the other natural disasters and man-made stuff. So if you want to leave our listeners with one thought, because we have about a minute left, what would it be? Many of my passwords for my, all the data sites that I access is wash your hands. If I had to leave them with one thought, it's just that, is that your, your individual actions around infection control and following guidelines are going to help determine which way this pandemic goes for our country. And are you so, currently now working in the emergency room or are you really mostly supporting the types of work and collecting data? I'm still doing my clinical practice. I'm doing about um, eight shifts a month in the emergency department and uh, oh a number of, of COVID patients. But yes, the rest of my time is spent on the public health side of this. I can't thank you enough. I know that you're so busy. I appreciate the time that you've taken to do this and I wish you to stay healthy as well. And hopefully, you know, we're all going to contribute by washing our hands and making sure that whatever we can do, we're willing to do. So thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to our COVID-19 edition of Money Sense. Our goal is to provide valuable information so that you can feel more confident in your financial decisions. You can listen to the show and any that you may have missed at ellenbecker.com slash money sense or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. To discuss these topics and more with one of our wealth advisors, call us at 262 691 3200 or visit ellenbecker.com for a complimentary consultation.